I'm really thank you, thankful for this sabbatical that we've had. It's uh, not been wasted, I'm, I guarantee you. Um, and uh, I'm believing that God has a lot in store for us. Uh, let's pray and we can ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we thank you that you are available to us today in this very moment that you do not just speak to us things that we can store up as knowledge, but that you are present, that we are having an expectation that you will not only speak to us, but you will do things in us because you are real. And so we welcome your presence. We recognize that unless you open our eyes and our hearts, we have no ability to make any difference in our lives even after hearing the word. But we thank you that you are present. So we welcome you to come speak to us and uh, do a work in us. We surrender the rest of this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin a series which I felt the Lord put upon my heart. And the series is called Highways. Highways. Uh, in these times, uh, COVID-19 and you know even before, uh, we experience tremendous uncertainty. And for many of us, we experience a sense of not having a road forward. Um, there are many people who feel that the future is so uncertain that uh, the gut reaction is sometimes to even shrink back from the future. In fact, I was uh, uh, talking to my friend Malcolm in Malaysia, and he said that many people were so affected by COVID-19 that... Uh, even as Christians, they have come to a place in which there's, with no uh, vision forward, without, with any, without any direction forward, they just say, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything active. I'm just going to wait. And there's a certain pa- paralysis for some of us. That some of the, for us, for some of us, the paras- paralysis is one of fear. For others, it's a paralysis is one of just complete um, um, lack of motivation. But I want to speak to this times in which it seems like, for some people, uh, the way is blocked. For some of us, we feel that we are stuck, or that we are stagnant, or we are blocked, or we are actually perhaps even going backwards in our lives. There have been setbacks that have taken place because of the circumstances around us in such a way that you have taken many steps backward and you just don't know the way forward. For some of us, and this is more dangerous, your direction is not forward, it's not backward, it's not sideways, but it's downward. And in some, and I, and I have been having a sense as I was praying that there are some of us who are actually sinking into depression. There may be this depression and you, you, it's perhaps not well defined. You don't know how that happened. But at the, at the end of a year and a half of, uh, of uh, COVID-19, of, of the kind of unusual circumstances we've been living in, you feel for some reason your morale, your heart has just been sinking and sinking and sinking. I want to speak to especially that. And therefore, the series that we have ahead of us is not blockages, but it's highways, which has to do with the fact that God has a highway ahead for us. Now, depending on your way of looking at life or your perspective of life, your worldview, you may have the sense that in the absence of God, there is no no highway. There's no road forward. It's just an open open uh, expanse in which everything that happens out of that is going to happen out of purely natural forces, out of physical forces, 
and out of chance and random um, permutations and combinations. And that sense of that openness is something that I think a lot of people have. We like the freedom of being open to whatever we want to do. But that worldview in these circumstances has caused you to experience a sense in which that there is no shepherd for me. There's no shepherd for the, for the future. In some ways, the children of Israel, after the, uh, the, the defeat of them by the Babylonians in 586 BC when the temple was destroyed, had that experience. They were sent into exile. And in that sense of exile, what they experienced was a deep wondering, a deep doubt about the word of God. They had thought that the temple would be so powerful that it would protect them, and it did not. And uh, you, can remember, you can remember the sermon, the temple sermon. Don't say the temple, the temple. Uh, God will destroy the temple. And at the end of the, 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 the demise of Jerusalem, uh, the children of Israel, uh, the, the Jews, were completely left out in the open. There was nothing, there's no way back. Perhaps you have uh, a sense that the universe is just, just, just open and there's no one to tell you that, the, the way back home or the way forward. Or perhaps you have a life, your, your perspective in life is that, well, your life has been predetermined. Your highway, your, your path has been predetermined perhaps by your parents or perhaps by your uh, ethnicity or by, perhaps by uh, uh, antecedent factors that have caused you to be foundationally uh, stuck in the path. And I just want to speak especially to that, to those of you who feel that your way has been predetermined, but you're not really excited about that. You're not excited about the choices ahead of us. And there are some of us who actually have a different kind of view of the future, and the future view of the future is that the future is actually hopeless. Thomas Hobbes uh, has famously spoke about, spoken about the fact that life is really short, it's, uh, it's uh, miserable, it is poor, it's, and it's full of, of, of suffering. And uh, perhaps that's your view of that. Thomas Hardy, the, the novelist, had this picture of, of, the, of creation, and so not, perhaps not creation, but this random universe in which uh, uh, life was, was constantly... Um, uh, fighting against human beings, fighting against the characters in his novel, against good, always fighting and, uh, and, and uh, conspiring against uh, good or good uh, fortune in people's lives. I don't know what your view is. Uh, the interesting thing is that the word heretic or heresy uh, in uh, the original language actually means going your own way, going your own way. But if you look at uh, with me at Isaiah chapter 35, there is a highway that God speaks about. And I'd like to talk about this highway. And by way of introduction today, we'll talk a little bit about highways as far as God is concerned. They're not exactly what we think they are, okay? Um, in Isaiah chapter 35, after the exile, after the demise of all hopes that uh, Israel had, uh, the prophet, out of the blue, out of the blue, against all the logic of what was going on, he says this in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 8. He says, a highway will be there in the midst of the rubble, in the, in the midst of the complete devastation from Babylon. A highway will be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, 
shall go astray. No lion shall be there, and nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is one of many highways that God speaks about, and we'll be looking at that. Isaiah chapter 40 speaks about a highway that is going to be built up. Isaiah chapter 62 speaks about a highway back into the presence of God. Um, um, and if you look at Isaiah chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 84, God speaks about this highway. And this highway is not a physical highway, it's a highway in the heart. And if you turn with me to, to Isaiah, sorry, Psalm 84, in verse 5, it says, Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, or the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And they go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. What the psalmist is saying is that there is something special, something alive about this highway. The highway is not just a road map for all of us to get onto and as best as we can by our own strength somehow negotiate that road. The highway is not a set of principles and, 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 uh, and uh, presets precepts from God that basically say, go on this way, and if you fail, well, bad luck for you. The highway is not God say, this is my way, go for it, and good luck. The highway of God is not something that is static, it's not a set of instructions, but it's a living and dynamic, uh, powerful relationship with God by which God actually takes you there takes you to his purpose for your life. And this highway is, in some ways, and I use this word a bit advisedly, magical, in the sense that this highway has a guide who's there. It's, it's a dynamic thing. Um, uh, the New Testament writers calls it a living way. It's a, it's a way, it's almost as if the path that you have is alive. And it, it is, by default, Defined not by the way it's going, the direction it's going, but the fact that there is someone living on that highway with you. And so, Psalm 84 says that in this highway, something is going on. You're going from strength to strength. Something is going on when you pass through valleys and places of uh, impossibility and depression. There, There is the presence of God, and that presence of God is transformative. Even though you are seem to you seem to be going on valley directions, valley places, places of tears. Um, just recently, in fact, actually yesterday, I heard that uh, something wonderful had taken place in the pers- in in someone in this church, and I'm not going to mention the name because I I, uh, I I I know that the story is not over yet. But um, Cindy had been ministering to someone who had been in a very, very difficult position. She had been experiencing tremendous hardship during COVID-19. It's been very hard for many people, especially the elderly, during this time of isolation. Um, She had just celebrated her 80th birthday, 
and uh, she felt very, very, um, very, very sad, very down, very depressed. And one of the things that um, uh, uh, she was learning to do is to have hope in God and to not look to her circumstances, but to look to God so that because of the fact that God on this highway was close to her, that she would hear a word in her ear, a whisper, and it would direct her. The highway would not just be a prescribed path, but it would be a, 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 a relationship of intimacy with God. And so, yesterday was a particularly hard day for her in, in the morning. Sorry, the, the two days ago was particularly hard, hard for her. And she felt something tell her, get out of the house. Don't think about yourself. And go and be a blessing to your neighbor. And she went next door to talk to a friend, a neighbor. And as she was talking to this woman, suddenly the woman heard a scream from somewhere inside the house. And she immediately, um, this person went straight to the, to the back of the house and found that this, her neighbor's uh, uh, husband was having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. I believe it's a heart attack. And she immediately went in and gave him CPR. Now, this woman is 80 years old. At 80 years old, against the run of play, she went in, gave, her, gave him CPR, and saved his life. The emergency vehicles came, and the personnel came and took him, and his life was saved. He's fine now. But what an amazing thing that on this highway, a highway that is not just a static way of prescriptive uh, theories and, and, and uh, principles, there is one who is there who's taking you into the future. And I feel that sometimes we are in our, uh, our, our perspective of the future have been in some ways damaged or affected by the circumstances of COVID-19 uh, and things that are going on around. And I really would like to speak into that kind of situation that we have. The, the Lord has a highway for you and me. You may be in a situation in which things are really impossible. You've had setbacks. You've had things taken place in your life that cause you to feel unviable. And if you feel that the alternatives in front of you seem so intractable and unviable, uh, the Lord has a way for you. Isn't that amazing? The Lord will make a way when there seems to be no way. And uh, I would like us to dwell on that in these days because in the midst of this seeming impossibilities, um, the people of God have a way. Psalm 25 speaks about the highway as, as a way in which all the ways of the Lord are uh, steadfast love and truth. And that word steadfast love, for many of you know, is the word chesed. It's the covenantal love, the love in which God has committed himself to you and me, in which he, he is faithful to be present in every difficulty, in every circumstance. The scriptures is replete with uh, words about that highway. In Psalm 16, he says, the, the psalmist says, he will show me the path of life. He will show me. He sometimes 
focus on the word, the path, okay, the path, the way to go. But I would like to focus on the fact that he will show me. See, the highway of God is one in which you're being shown things, that the presence of God is real, he's with you, he's next to you. And in every circumstance and every situation, he wants to show you and he wants to cause you to experience not a blockage, not a wall, but a highway, a way, even where there seems to be no way. We can sometimes be um, um, caught up by um, statistics, right? Statistics. I mean, the statistics, there's a way in which statistics are the easy way, the lazy way in which sometimes we look at reality just by st- statistics. And sometimes we can think of statistics as damning. I mean, um, my two of my children are, uh, are about to enter into medical and, and dental school. But um, months ago, when we looked at the stats and the, 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 the percentage of people who get in and, and the number of people who are applying, it's so easy to look at the statistics and find there is no way. There is no way. Um, the stats, here's, here's, a, here's a disturbing stat. It's uh, George Barner and uh, David Kinnaman uh, came up with uh, the statistics that about two-thirds of those who are between the ages of 18 and 29, two-thirds, okay, about 64%, uh, 64% will lose their faith. They will, will, will leave church. Uh, I think it's Barna himself as well who, uh, who came up with the statistic that about only 4 to 6% of so-called Christians, or sorry, uh, 4 to, to, to 6% of, of Americans believe the Word of God or the, the Bible as uh, infallible. So these, are, these statistics are very, very hard to actually swallow. And especially as you look at the next generation, the way in which they are going to be growing up, there isn't much hope. There isn't much hope statistically. And yet at the same time, there is good news. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the, the Bible is full of the phrase, one phrase that um, is hopeful. And that phrase is, but you. In Isaiah chapter 42, 41 verse 8, it says, but you, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my anointed, I will pour water upon the, the, the thirsty land. But you, Isaiah, you find this in Isaiah 44 verse 1 as well. You find this uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the New Testament. But you are a chosen generation. But you, but you. And what God begins to say is this, like, when I call you, I do not only call you into a religion, but I supernaturally set you apart so that your life, in the midst of statistics, in the midst of the... Uh, the, the, the uh, the proclivity of the world to get into serious trouble, but you, I have a different plan for you. I have a different path for you. And this path is not just something for, for you to, to follow and I'll say good luck to you. No, but this path is something, is a, a but you path. But you, in, in Psalm 91, but you, 10,000 to fall but, uh, on one side and 1,000 on the other side, but you, but you. And the, the Bible is full of but you's. And that's the whole uh, understanding that we have of sanctification. Not just that we try to be holy, but the, fact of the, but the fact of the matter is that God's supernatural hand has set us apart for better. He has, he is persuaded, Paul says, of better things of, of us. 
And there is this better, not because of the fact that we are good, we are better than anybody else. Oh, by far, by, by far, this is, this is, this is, this is the, op- it's the opposite. We, uh, we are people who are by grace given a but you from God. And I want to talk about this but you, that you, God has called you for different. And so there are some of us who today are watching the live stream and you're saying, I am in a situation in which I, along with all the rest of the, 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 the statistics, are flowing in this whole vast expanse of hopelessness. And one the Lord would say is this, I want to arrest you. I will put my finger upon you. But you. But you. And so I'd like to share a little bit more about this. Um, and talk about how we can experience in the midst of blockages, in the midst of stuck places, in the place of impossibilities, and in the midst of unviabilities in our circumstances. The fact that God has a future and a hope, and He has abundant life, He has His purposes for you, that if you are a child of God, God has called you for a specific life. A life that not all the, um, the bad luck that's going on around, notwithstanding, statistics notwithstanding, God has chosen you for. And uh, I'd like to turn with you to a passage of Scripture, and we will be dwelling on that for the next maybe two weeks. And it's in Genesis, and we will look at the life of uh, Jacob. J- Jacob is a person whose starting point in the, his path of life was completely negative. So, so let's have a look at this. What do you do when the foundational starting points of your life disqualify you from any kind of abundant life, any kind of hope? Uh, turn with me to Genesis. Uh, well, we may look at Genesis. Yes, we'll look at Genesis chapter 27. We may look at a few verses there. Uh, Genesis 27, Jacob uh, was the second son, the younger son uh, of Isaac. The older, his older brother being Esau. Uh, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. So Jacob was the one who was not chosen. Uh, Jacob had, there are no plans for Jacob. All the plans were for Esau. And he was the not favored one, not favored one. And in being not favored, just because of the law of primogeniture, that is that the, the eldest gets everything and the others get nothing, hardly anything. Um, Jacob finds himself born into a situation that has been predetermined for him, a, a situation in which um, he would not get anything much, not getting any much. And so here's Jacob, and perhaps some of us are, are in situations that are similar to this. Jacob, in, in chapter 27 of Genesis, uh, comes in. Uh, he is, he's more the favorite of his mother, uh, Rebecca. Uh, Esau is the man... I've said before, the man from Marlboro Country is the, the man who's the, the hunter. He's the man with the hair on his chest. He's the one, he's the one who's, uh, uh, in terms of uh, the favorite of the, of, of the father, he was the man. He was the man. Everything was for him. And here's Jacob, who's just completely no, no hope, no token of good for his life. And his father is dying. Or he's, he's very old, old in age and in, will, will die soon. And we can read this from verse 1. Isaac was old, his eyes were dim, so that he could not see. And he called his eldest son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, See, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. 
Now then, take my, your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Then prepare once me savory food such as I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may bless you before I die. And Rebecca, the mother, overhears him and decides that she must level the playing field. And that is the first thing that we want to do is when we find that we are disadvantaged or there are preset things in society that do injustice to us, our first thing, our first reaction is that we have to level the playing field. We have to level the playing field because we're not of the right kind, we're not of the right personality type, we're not of the right body type, we're not of the right race, we're not of the right um, um, uh, group, we're not in the right group. And as a result of that, the all our efforts begin to be poured into leveled, leveling the playing field. And this is what Rebecca does. Rebecca, I'm sure you know the story, many of you. What she does is that she intercepts this message and calls Jacob and says, Jacob, you are the man of the kitchen. Okay, it's okay, don't worry. You're not a man of the field. And uh, your father is going to release the blessing and the inheritance upon Esau. I'm going to disguise you as Esau. You are going to take his place and I'm going to put furs upon your hair so that, upon your hand, so that you will look like, sound and smell like Esau. I'm going to take his clothes and put in and you're going to disguise yourself so that you can supplant your brother so that the playing field can be leveled. This is a method of leveling the playing field that is not a good way because what it does is it disadvantages another person so that you can actually have an equal advantage. And so this is probably the way in which most of us would want to do it. And, and Rebecca basically says, we must level the playing field. We must get you in. And they do that. And true enough, uh, Isaac is deceived and he gives the blessing to Jacob because, Isaac, because uh, Rebecca has succeeded in her plan and J- Jacob um, has received the blessing. Now Esau, though, comes in and he comes in as the, the, as the, 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 the real person, the genuine McCoy, the, the, the person of, of the father's favorite. And he comes in and he realizes he's been tricked. And what Jacob doesn't realize is that Esau is so murderously angry that for the rest of the, of the, the years ahead, Jacob is going to be hunted down. He's going to be living under the threat of Esau's desire and promise to kill him. And this will hang over him in spite of the fact that he has been blessed by God later on. He will be, will be blessed by God in, in the, in later on. And because of that, he will carry this baggage with him up to uh, um, Syria and then back again. And this baggage will be con- the constant threat of his brother Esau's uh, desire and promise to murder him or to kill him or to take revenge over him. So that even though the fullness of the promise would come only when he goes back to his host. He cannot go back because of the fact that Esau is going to kill him. And so I want to I put it to you that actually in these situations, 
We tend to have our own ways of trying to level the playing field. I don't know what you do. We have ways of being perhaps deceptive. Perhaps uh, we have ways in which we uh, marshal our gifts and our powers to, so that we will actually um, have a fair, fair shot at this. But you see, the thing about it is that even though for Jacob, his initial foundational uh, preset positions as far as the future is concerned were negative, God had a highway and a plan for him and a way for him. And that way was not his, his way of the flesh. And so I want to go, go a little bit into this. And now, as a result of um, uh, what we see in Isaiah chapter, uh, sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 27, uh, jo- Jacob has to run away. Yeah? He runs away from the place of promise and he takes a step backward. And so his position with respect to his future is actually backward. He cannot stay at home. He cannot be the inheritor of Jacob's blessings and, sorry, of uh, Isaac's uh, blessings. And Isaac had something that God had given to him. He had that covenant, a covenant inheritance in which God would be forever with him, that God would bless him and would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. God would be be close to him and God would give him this supernatural relationship. See, Jacob loved that. He saw that from afar. As he looked at his father's life, he saw his grandfather's life, Abraham's life, and he saw there was something special about it. He wanted the covenant that they had made with God and that God had made with them. He didn't know that the covenant was for him as well. But he wanted that. He wanted it so much that he was willing to deceive to get it. And it's understandable, see, because he is persona non grata. He's not a person who would be um, uh, uh, a candidate for such blessings. All he, he had was the, the growing up experience of being not chosen. Not chosen. I sometimes use the phrase, sometimes we, we feel that we've been specially chosen not to be chosen. I remember growing up that way. I came from, come from a Christian family and I heard so many testimonies of people who had experienced the power of God in their lives, miracles. My, um, my grandfather, my uncles, my aunts, my parents and all would tell me stories of miracles and I never experienced one miracle. I never experienced an answer to prayer. I never experienced something in which I could say God favors me. It always seemed as if I was trying to pray to him always seemed like this. I was trying to make my move towards him and God seemed to be completely silent to me. I felt that I was specially chosen to not be chosen. I remember one time I was in a meeting in which um, a whole bunch of people came up for prayer and all of them were touched by God supernaturally. They fell under the power of God. They experienced God's, God's uh, love upon them. And then there was me. I was the last one to be prayed for. And at the end of that, nothing happened. I think I was the only one, it seemed, in which I got prayer and nothing happened. I felt like when the Holy Spirit, when, when I came into the room where the Holy Spirit was moving, when I came in through the door, the Holy Spirit would move quickly to the other side. I, I thought I was specially chosen not to be chosen. And I understand how it is for Jacob. And I wonder whether we all have that kind of vestige of that feeling of not being chosen, the non-chosenness that's there, the non-identity, the identity that we have, it seems like, is one of being not chosen. And I think that's what Jacob's 
Jacob's problem was he felt that he was not chosen, that God had, had, had not looked at, upon him, not God had no favor upon him. And perhaps that was something that was uh, inculcated in his upbringing. But anyway, there are these non-viabilities perhaps that you and I have, like Jacob. You, perhaps you're not the preferred one. Perhaps your non-viability is because of your age. You feel that you're too old or too young. Perhaps your non-viability is because of your race, because you feel that you're of the wrong type, or perhaps you don't like the way in which you look, and because of that, the, the looks have been very, very important to you, and you feel non-viable. Some of us have our path forward um, blocked or perhaps restrained because of the fact that we have perhaps wounds in our soul. Some of us have been hurt deeply. Uh, some of us have been hurt so deeply that there are certain basic things, basic reactions to circumstances and to problems that you just cannot respond in a successful way because of a wounding perhaps that's taken place. Perhaps something has happened in your life that has made you somehow weaker, uh, more impotent than other people in terms of responding favorably. Um, I I, I discovered um, some time ago that for some reason I brought up, I was brought up in a way that made me very vulnerable to conflict. It made me have great difficulty whenever there was conflict. In fact, I re- remember the time when someone, when, even when somebody would disagree with me, just intellectually disagree with me, I'd feel rejected, I'd feel vulnerable to that. I felt hurt. And I began to realize that for so much of my life, much of my way of living was to just somehow avoid any kind of rub, any kind of conflict with people. And I didn't realize that it was because some um, uh, undisclosed wound or un- undiscovered wound perhaps was in me. I, I, can't, I can't put my finger on anything. But I knew this, that I was growing up a huge diplomat, growing up a person completely vulnerable to lots of things. And as people would have conflict with me, I would have become more and more and more and more wounded that at the end of the day, I would find myself always more weak, more vulnerable, more, more hesitant for things that would be challenging. And I believe that God actually began to heal me. And as he began to heal me, I began to find myself becoming more normal in that sense. And uh, that, for some of you, your, uh, your issue that is holding you back is this. For some of us, it's something that's taken place in your life, a failed marriage, a failed relationship, a situation in which the most precious person in your life has somehow broken relationship with you. And as a result of that, these things cause us to overmanage our relationships, cause us to overmanage our own self. We become high control, some of us, or some of us become more um, um, edgy about certain things. I want to put it to you that with J- Jacob experienced something that was on the outset of his life, something that made him non-viable. And as we are just meditating before the Lord. I just wonder whether 
you have something like that in your life. Perhaps an, a non-viability issue that um, has prevented you. I want to say to you that God has a highway for you. And this highway is not just a highway in which you need to just get, you get yourself up by the bootstraps and somehow make it on your own. But actually, this highway is a way in which God has made for you by the blood of Jesus. At the expense of his own life, he has made open for you. And therefore, in the New Testament, we sit down. Now we, are, we have access to him by a new and living way. By the death of Jesus, by his blood, you can actually enter in and circumvent or walk right through those places because there is healing in the name of Jesus. There is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And so Jacob, as he goes through his life outside of uh, Beersheba, outside of the, the area of, his, of the, promise, the promised inheritance, he wanders out to Syria and he, and he lives his life in such a way that um, he is constantly having this burden of guilt over himself. Perhaps it's not guilt. Perhaps it's just the burden of fear. And I want to address especially that for some of us because there are some of us who are somehow having the sense that before God, you're not um, qualified. Or perhaps you have a burden of a fear that will, that has somehow affected everything that you do. Nobody knows about it. And Jacob lived with that fear. He lived with the fact that he had no identity. He was not the first son. He was the unchosen. And sometimes what happens is that we try to make up for it, level the playing field by trying to get an identity from outside, from people, from being accepted, from doing well, from uh, scoring high. And uh, as a result of that, we, we take on fake identities, identities that are not of ourselves, not identities that God has for us. But we come to certain situations in which perhaps during this period, we find that the lack of identity, the identity that we have put on upon ourselves based upon our education, our race, our, what people say to us, based upon what society says your identity is, we live in times in which identity is put upon us uh, and it is imposed upon us by, by all kinds of uh, societal uh, uh, so-called truth. And everybody's looking for an identity. Sometimes we try to find our identity through our gifts. I wonder whether um, uh, Jacob tried to find his identity as a person who's a killer cook, cook or chef in the kitchen. I don't know. Some of us try to get our identity by a relationship with somebody insignificant. I don't know whether Jacob got his identity from his mother, but all I can say is this. These kinds of identities are not real identities. They're not solid. And they fall in the face, they shatter in the face of great adversity. So let's go back to chapter 32. We're going to jump over a lot of things that happened in Jacob's life. He was blessed. He was also judged. He was... Uh, yeah. In, in, in some ways, they had a sort of karma. <laughs> of course, we don't believe in karma as, as Christians. But we had a karma experience in which he himself got deceived by his uncle Laban. and all. We won't have time to get into that. But there come, came a time in his life, maybe 14 years later, okay, maybe 14 years later, in which God spoke to him, I still have the promise for you. I still have a promise for you. And the only way in which you can get that promise is to go back to your father, Isaac. 
And Jacob is faced with the fact that if he goes back and he is to find God's purpose for his life and God's destiny for him, he would have to go back. But blocking the way would be Esau, his brother. And he comes to a place where he has to wrestle with this. But he decides that if God's word is true, if God is the only one that can give him identity, a sense of self, if God is the only one that could save him, he has to test it out. He has to go back and to see whether he will actually die or he will experience the promises of God. And I suppose these times of COVID-19 could bring us to those places in which you and I have to know whether God is real for you or not. Whether the things that God, you think, spoke to you are really God things or really God was just not really looking at you and he was actually saying these things and it was not really meant for you and you are actually chosen, chosen to be not chosen. And Jacob had to come to this in chapter 32 when in all his, uh, in all his wanderings, the Lord was saying, I want you to come back to this point. You may have been blessed, you may have great abilities and you may have honed your skills and you have, may have become this amazing person that is highly gifted and highly blessed. But at the end of the day, at the very bottom of your being, you have to know whether you have an identity or not. Or are you just a, just a, a, a scoundrel, a person who is a, 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 a trickster, a person who is uh, uh, manipulating himself into favor? You have to know, see, after you have manipulated everybody, uh, you have to know after, after you have done all the extra things to get favor, you have to know whether God has regard for you or not. Whether you are part of God's plan. Whether God loves you or not. And Jacob had to come to this place because in spite of all the blessing that he had through his journeys and through his, his time with Laban, he had this hole that is in his heart. That sense of not having God regard him or look upon him. And so chapter 32, God speaks to J Jacob and tells him, it's time to go home. It's time for you to find out in the midst of this nasty world whether God has a way for you or not. Whether this way is a generalized way for just everybody and just whoever wants to come, come. If you don't want to come, doesn't matter. Or is it that God had pre pre predestined a way for you? He had to know whether First Peter, so to speak, chapter 1, is really true when God says, God has caused us to come into to be birthed into an inheritance incorruptible. It's reserved in heaven for you. He had to know that. And so he comes and he has to face um, uh, Esau. But he's scared for his life. And because he's scared for his life, he has to, he, he has to kind of come to terms with it. And so uh, we're going to quickly go down and... Uh, uh, to, to verse 6 of, of uh, Genesis chapter 32. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and it brought to the surface every fear that he's had since he was growing up, since the, the time of the guilt and probably that which was before him. And then Jacob 
was greatly afraid and distressed, divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies, thinking, if Esau comes to me, to the one company, and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. So Jacob is hedging his bets. He's actually um, uh, doing this kind of a cost analysis, uh, cost-risk analysis, and he divides his whole uh, entourage into two. Hopefully, Esau would get one, and he would lose 50% of what he had, and he would have at least 50%. And so he's, you know, he's trying to level the playing field again. That's the way he knows. Jacob has been adept and has been experienced in shoring up an identity that was missing. It was shoring up an identity that he did not have. Shoring up a sense of his own uh, 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 part in the world. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, verse 9, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all that steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only one staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two companies. So you bless me. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, because if I go back there, he's going to kill me. His promise, his last famous last words to me was, I'm going to kill you. And he's stronger than me. He has more hair on his chest than me. For I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers and the children, or with the children. And then he says, yet you have said. What did he say? What did God say? I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. Yet you have said. Verse 13 says he spends his night there and he wrestles with that. What's the wrestling? The wrestling has to do with the fact that Esau is very real. His words that have been haunting him for the past 14 or so years are still present. They are the defining, perhaps, defining mark of Jacob's life, quite apart from his blessing, quite apart from his success. They are the defining um, underground being defining words. I'm going to kill you. These are the words that played into his past, his guilt. And I wonder whether there are some of us who have a past that you cannot shake off. They come back to visit you at night. They come to visit you every time something good happens. Or there is something good that may be a possibility for you. But they come back to haunt you because of the past. Because of something that you have failed in. Something that you have perhaps not measured up in. Something of a bad experience that has taken place that causes you to be somehow glitched up, tainted. Somehow there's a, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a Maserati but one day somebody took a hammer and banged the back of your, 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 your hood. And forever, you're a Maserati with a, with, a, with a dent on your hood. Somehow, you're just, just that. And you can only see the dent on the hood and you can't see the rest of the car, which is really good. Everybody will say, well, the rest of it's really great. It's just that one dent. No, you cannot help being defined by that thing that's hanging over you. And here's J- Jacob, and she has to say, I am this. This is Jacob. You know the word, the, the name Jacob means supplanter. 
That means not qualified, not actually viable for anything good. Supplanter means this is the good thing is not for you. He's defined by not for you. And everything that he's done is to try to make up for it and to level the playing field and to, to make it that in such a way that in spite of the fact that he, good things are not for him, he has to somehow live that. And, 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 and he has to bring his Jacobness, the Jacobness of the unchosenness into, into, this, into this, uh, this wrestle with God. And at the same time, he says to God, just one thing, is only one plea, yet you have said, yet you have said, and there's going to be things that are going to be defining for every one of us in which God is going to pick His Word against everything of your experience, everything that you know of yourself, everything that you don't know about yourself, everything that people have said about you, everything that people, the way, about the way people have treated you. And it will, it will, it will be pitted against what God says. I'm going to bless you. And Jacob comes to the fact and says, I'm about to die. Not only am I about to die, my wives are about to die. Not wife, but wives are about to die. Everything is about to be lost. He's at the river Jabok, which means um, emptying. And at this place of emptying, he is left by himself. He has sent everybody around, uh, 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 ahead of him. And he's by himself at the river, and there is nothing left for him. And he comes to God and he says, Except for one thing, yet you have said, I'm done for. Not only am I done for, I'm done for as a person who has no identity, has no being. My gifts cannot give me being. My blessings, my success can't. And said, yet you have said. It is in this place in which God will determine for you and me what kind of people will be, what our identity will be. Because what's going to happen is this. You are going to decide... And, and find out whether the Word of God to you is stronger than all the circumstances and all the things that you are coming up against. All the realities that are there in your life. And Jacob comes and he, in, he, in, in, the, in the river Jabok by himself, he wrestles with God. He wrestles in his own mind. Should I or shouldn't I? And he's finding that Esau is coming closer and closer and closer. He's done everything that he can to level the playing field. But come down to the last moment, he has no assurance that things are going to come out well for him. Except, yet you have said. I tell you, all of us as Christians will be tested today. In these days, we are like exiles. We are like exiles. And everything will, will come against us and that will be a, the, the best blessing that you have and I have. When we, are, when we become exiles in, in a world that has already rejected Jesus, this is going to cause you to, to know whether you're going to be one of the people who find that the Word of God and the reality of God is so much more real or that everything that everybody else says is true. And so in verse 22 of chapter 32, the same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabok, which means emptying. He took them. Remember that these names are actually significant because Jabok was named, that, that brook was called Jabok after the experience, not before the experience. He didn't come to this place and look it up in a map and says, oh, it's called Jabok. Okay, oh, I didn't know there was Jabok River. No, he, he named it Jabok. 
So it's significant. There's an emptying that God has for us. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. With none of the voices, none of the supports, none of his gifts. And a man wrestled with him amid daybreak. In the New Testament, we find that the man was an angel, and, when the, and, and he represented God. And the man saw that he, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, now isn't that funny? That the angel did not prevail against Jacob. He struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because if you do not bless me, I'm dead. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall go. You shall no, no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Let's stop here for a little bit. As Jacob wrestles with this fact, God sends an angel to him. An angel is a messenger. And in some ways, the, the, the angel clarifies what the issue is for him. And Jacob is at this place where he's got to know whether God is enough for him or not. Whether God can overcome Esau and his 400 men, in spite of the fact that Esau has said he was going to kill him. And in this place, the word of God is either going to be something that's just words or it is going to be real. And this will divide Christians in the future between those who experience the word of God as a real thing and are the substance of the, rea the reality of God's power and those who it's just intellectual. In 1989, I was pastoring a church that was really a very exciting church in, in, in Kuala Lumpur. We had grown very quickly from a, a, a small number, about 200 to eight, 900. And I was so excited about ministry and I was so elated about what God was doing. And then one night, around 12, 12 midnight, after a Reinhard Bonnke um, uh, healing campaign, I was driving home. I was sick, uh, not feeling very well. And at about midnight, I fell asleep on the wheel and the car crashed into a stationary crane. I had, in the, in the morning, heard something in my, in, my, in my mind and it was a phrase, your life will never be the same again. It was a Sunday morning and that Sunday night, around midnight, this happened. Immediately, my, I realized that my femur was broken my eyes had been torn up. Those days, people who wore glasses actually wear glass. The car had been completely smashed, and all the glass had, had gone into my eyes. My eyes were lacerated, and uh, it was not pretty. Right? I, the, the eyeballs were hanging out and all that. And immediately, I was awakened in tremendous pain. A van passed by, and sorry, a, a car passed by, and three guys came out. I could not see. I was stuck. I could not move because the steering wheel was on my chest. It had broken on my chest. The top of the car had, 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 uh, had shorn off. Glass all over the place. And they tried to take, take my wallet, and they tried to rob me of stuff. And just as they were doing it, 
some guys came and chased them off. But during that time in the car, I could feel the devil telling me, so your life will never be the same again, huh? Yeah, your life will never be the same again. You're blind now. And I realized that I was blind. And as I, as I, as I, as I sought the Lord, I came to a Jacob at Jabok situation. All the things that have been spoken to me by God, that I felt God had spoken to me, all the prophecies and all that kind of thing, had come to a point where they hit a wall. All I knew was this. I was blind. I could not see. And I did not know, know whether I would come out of this okay or not. I was completely conscious. And it was in this place that I realized that in this wrestling, I could not do anything. I could not do anything. I had to be left to the, to the, to the, to the mercy of God and I'm going to find out whether God was a good God or not. In fact, I felt the devil speaking in my, my ear. So you say God is a good God, huh? And something inside me just rose up and, and spoke back to that voice and said, all the more, all the more. Yet you have said something like that, all the more. A van had come and the people in the van very mercifully chased those three guys who were trying to steal from me or, or do whatever and miraculously got me out of the car and, we, and rushed me to emergency, uh, the emergency ward, got there. And they immediately, I could hear people shocked, gasping, screaming even when they saw me coming in because I looked so terrible. My face was completely um, covered in blood. I did not know that my nose, my, my eyes had been torn, torn out. And the doctor immediately went to work, um, uh, working on my wounds and told me, you will never be able to see again. Your eyes have been filled with glass and they have been smashed. The, the left eye has been smashed. You will never be able to see. You'll be blind in both eyes. I'm sorry about that. And something inside me just kept on looking to the Lord. And I realized, after all this, after all that we have gone through, Lord, after all that I have believed and, and, and in you, is this what it's going to come to? And something inside me said, no. I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They all called my parents, called the church, the church prayed. And uh, I, I don't know how many hours it was. I was completely, fully, fully um, awake. I had lots of stitches on me and they bandaged my eyes. And, um, and they put me somewhere else for a few hours. I was supposed to have attraction, But at the end, to cut a long story short, I began to find that the only way in which I can wrestle with God is to surrender with Him. That wrestling with God was not a matter of my own will, my own bulldog will, my own uh, uh, determination, but it is one in which the, the Lord would wrestle my doubts down. They took off the bandage, and many of you know the story. When they took off the bandage, I was shocked that I could actually see and the doctors, I said to the doctor um, after, after they took off the bandage, 
I can see. I can see. And the doctor said, no, you can't see. You can't see. Your eyes filled, has been smashed. I can see. And she, so she, 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 you know, put her fingers out and said, count how many fingers? I counted quite accurately. <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, she said, wow. I said, praise God, I can see. Praise God, I can see. You know, when you experience God fully in that way, in the midst of, of that, you don't care whether people will make fun of you for your religiousness or religiosity or not. You don't care. I was so full of praise. I said, praise the Lord. The doctor was a Hindu, said, praise God. Thank God. I've never seen this before. Uh, over the next few months, I was in hospital, and more and more, I began to experience the grace of God more and more. But it was at this point where I knew that in the midst of that crisis, I had to know who I am in God. I realized that as far as God is concerned, I'm invulnerable because I'm His son, not because of anything good in me, but because of the fact that I had faced that. And in the midst of that, the Lord showed Himself that He loved me. And because of that, I have not been afraid of situations that are physical uh, since then. I, I found that God has done it. Now, when, are we going to finish soon? The, the, let's get back to that passage. It says, Jacob was left alone, and the angel began to wrestle with him. He wrestled with him, and he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. Because if you don't bless me, I'm going to... F- be abandoned to death. And the angel says to, to, to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob gives him his name, like his identity, the identity that had been given to him. Jacob means supplanter, supplanter. I'm just supplanter. My name means I don't deserve anything. I don't have a right to any good from God. I don't deserve God's forgiveness or God's free pass. I don't get a free lunch. I don't get free anything. And the angels said, you're not Jacob. That's not your identity. Your name is Israel, which means prince with God, because you have prevailed. You didn't know that you had a different identity from what was given to you. It's not the identity that the world has given to you. It's not the identity that your parents have given to you or the school have given to you. It's not the identity that society says that you are. It's not an identity that's based upon your, your qualifications, your race, your personality type, or your Enneagram number, or your, your Myers-Briggs thing. It's not, nothing to do with your personality. It has to do with who God calls you. When an infinite God speaks out of heaven and calls you out and names you, Israel, that's who you are, and he will stand for it. He will back you up. He will back it up with signs and wonders. Your name will be authenticated, not because of the fact you call yourself that or you identify yourself as this or that, but because of the fact that God authenticates you. You have a name that God has given to you, and it's a name that has the backing of heaven upon you. And since that time, I've experienced time and time and time again situations that are impossible in which God calls me by his name, his son, his loved one. And he does not just call it to me, and I don't have that name just because of the fact that I call myself that or I would like to be called that, or I'd like to be identified as this, but because of the fact that God backs it up with signs and wonders. Amen? And this is what God wants to do. When you come to an end of yourself, you come to an end of yourself, you stop stop your striving, and you come and say, God, I surrender myself to you, and I'm waiting for you. And you speak your word to me. And the angel says, you didn't realize 
You have more authority than me. That's why I couldn't prevail against you. You didn't know that you are actually a prince with God. That you have me under your sort of control. Now, you need to be a bit careful before we say too much, make too much out of that. But the angel says, that's why. You didn't know. You're not Jacob. Jacob is what everybody else calls yourself. You call yourself that. But you don't know that God, in the quiet and the silence and the darkness of your, your life, calls you and he whispers to you, your name is not Jacob. Your name is Israel. Israel. Prince with El, with God. And it was in this place that Jacob becomes changed. It was in this place that Jacob died. And he died to his guilt. He died to his past. He died to the thing that was hanging over him. And he comes out of that situation and faces death. He faces Esau. And as he faces Esau, God backs up his name. As he meets Esau, Esau reconciles with him and even offers him riches. That is the miracle of God. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but at the end of the day, you have no name unless God gives you a name. And the Lord tells us, He speaks to us in these places of quiet, these places of, in which we are stretched out and wrung out, in this place where we stop trying to struggle and in that wrestling, surrender to God. Just as I had to surrender to Him, to him in, the, in, in, the, in the darkness of a, of a hospital bed, just as Jacob had to wrestle, wrestle and, and be hit on the hip by the angel. And then he was hit on the hip. He couldn't walk. Completely helpless. I know what it's like to have a hip replacement. I know what it's like to be completely hip challenged. And sometimes what God does is this. He brings us to an end of ourselves. And in that way, it's not just so that we will suffer, but so that we will find who we are. And who God says you are will be backed up. If you stand with Him, you will be backed up with signs and wonders. I've seen miracles taking place in our, in our lives and uh, because of the fact that God has called him. And Jacob says, okay, and this is the, this is the way I want to, to end. What's your name? <laughs> Jacob says, what's your name? He says, no, I'm not going to tell you your name. <laughs> I don't tell you my name. And, he, and, uh, and uh, he says, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so the Lord called the place Peniel saying, sorry, yes. And Jacob called the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and my life has not been destroyed. And this is why I want to end with, with, and that is that Jacob should have died when he saw God face to face. Sin causes us to not be able to withstand the presence of God. That's why some people are afraid of the presence of God. Because they know intuitively their lives are not right. And Jacob saw the face of God and suddenly realized, what the heck? I didn't die. You've seen many people in the, in, the, in the Old Testament who experienced that. Gideon experienced that too, right? Saw the face of God. I'm going to die. He says, relax. He saw the face of God and did not die. Do you know why? Because Christ, from eternity, was the lamb that was slain for us. 
There are some of us who are living with a burden of sin, of guilt, of the past. I want to let you know that today, you do not need to be afraid of that. You can stand before God, not with any kind of impertinence or with any kind of presumption, but because of the fact that Christ died for you and He, wa- he, he washed you by the, at the expense of His own life, of your sin, so that you can face God and all the godness of God, all the power of God, and still not be destroyed of Christ. This is the God that we have. If you have never given your life to God, and you've never got rid of this, the guilt, or sin, or the past that's on your life, today, I want to let you know that you can. And you come to a place where you exchange your life with Him and say, I live for you, not for myself. Let us pray. One of the great things that um, Barna and Kinnaman discovered, though, which I didn't tell you, is that in the midst of this great attrition of Christians, there is 10% of Christians in America that they called the resolute, the resolute um, disciples. They are 10% who are qualitatively completely different from the rest. Their lives are glorious. They are strong. They relate well to the world. They have intimacy with God. They found their identity in God. There is a way in which God, in the midst of tremendous uh, devastation, is putting his finger upon a people that look like, sound like, the people of the highway on Isaiah 35. A people who know their God, display strength, and do exploit. I am not anticipating a time in which the Christians will get weaker and weaker. But there is a group of people in the, in the book that they wrote. It's called, um, I believe it's called the, um, let me see. The Faithful Ones. And in this book, they, they describe this group of people, these 10% of them. Uh, actually, the, the title of the book is called Faith for Exile. And they are identified as people who identify themselves in God and they have intimacy with God. They are discerning about all that's happening in social media. They are people who are, integ- they are part of an integrated group of people who are intergeneration intergenerational church, uh, in an intergenerational church. They live contra-narcissism. They give themselves over to missions. And they have a faith that is applied into the world, not just in church. I believe God is raising us up like these, the faith for exiles. Let us pray. Amen. Just sense right now, Lord, as, as we come together, that there are those amongst us who are praying Psalm 55, give ear to my words, give ear to my prayer. Things are desperate right now for me. And if they're not desperate today, next year I've heard they're desperate. So I just sense the Lord is saying, I have, I am, and I'm asking you to give your ear to me. I have something to say. And so we thank you for this word where you promised Gideon and you did it, and you promised Jacob and you did it, God. That you have a word, Lord Jesus, that sets us on another path.
we ask right now in Jesus' name for all of us, God, that really need to have our ears open to you, that you will do a miracle in our ears right now. We would not be deaf any longer. You will take the wax out. We saw that in children's ministry prayer today. God, we had a word for the children. It would happen for the children. We pray it for ourselves and the adults right now. That you would take the wax out of our ears and we sit down and we pick up your word, God. It will be such a treasure to us. Thank you right now when we meet with you, God. You never come without a gift. You are our gift. Your word is our gift to open our ears today. We pray. We thank you, Lord, that you exchange your life with us. You cause us to come into this place where we can find ourselves no longer burdened by everything the world says about us and how our own self-recrimination accuses us. We can be people of the highway. Make us that people. We thank you, Lord. In the days to come, you will raise up a people who know you display strength, and take action. In Jesus' name, amen.